Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl and Vision. Here we are with episode 111, and uh, today's very special guest is Paul Chastain. Uh, some of you may know Paul as the uh, primary singer and songwriter for the band Velvet Crush, a uh, very popular band in the 90s uh, that came from Rhode Island. You know, in this conversation, I kind of try to cover as much as I can about Paul's history kind of uh, growing up in uh, Peoria, Illinois, to uh, eventually moving out here to Providence, Rhode Island, and kind of the accidental way that they ended up uh, ending up here in the city. Uh, forming Velvet Crush, playing with Matthew Sweet, eventually came, you know, becoming part of his band. And uh, right, right off the bat, we just, you know, Paul jumps right into a couple of stories that he, sh- he shares about, uh, you know, working with Ivan Julian in Matthew Sweet's band. Yeah, it was a, it was a great conversation. It was something I've really been looking forward to. Um, Paul is one of those people who uh, have, have been in a band from the Rhode Island area that has kind of had this mythical status to me, and, and I have just really been wanting to connect with them for a long time. So I'm very happy to, to be able to bring this uh, conversation to you today. So Paul is currently working on a band called The Small Square. Uh, they have a new album out called Ours and Others, which is available on Farm to Label Records. What you're listening to is the first track off of that album called uh, 23rd. Uh, at the end of the episode, I include a small portion of another song called The Hourglass. So The Small Square is, is a really great band uh, that is kind of like a two-piece. It's uh, Paul and his uh, partner, John Richardson. So uh, John Richardson has, has worked with like Tommy Keen, Gin Blossoms, and Badfinger, to, to name a few. So they're like really, you know, accomplished and talented musicians, and so they're working together on this new project, and it's and it's really great. I really encourage you to to at least take a listen to the new album, if not make a purchase. Um, I'll provide links to the Bandcamp and to Farm to Label Records, uh, so that if you are interested in listening to it or purchasing it, you have both options there. And. Um, yeah, uh, just uh, just FYI, folks, uh, I'm going to take it slow for the remainder of the year. Uh, you know, the holidays are rearing their ugly head, and uh, I'm going to be focusing on, on just kind of like being here for the family for the holidays, and uh, I'm going to take a break, uh, and we're going to regroup for the new year. So um, you're not going to hear from me for a little while, but uh, all the while I will be, you know, updating the stuff on the, on the Instagrams and the social medias and uh, on YouTube, you know, probably put up some small clips for you just to catch up on some of that. And um, yeah, otherwise, um, I wish you all a happy holiday and a happy new year. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all again very soon. Uh, thank you very much, folks. All that we ask is that you um, do all the things you do with the Internet is what we say. Uh, like, share, subscribe, comment, rate, review, all of those things. They all really help a lot. And if you care to help us out in a financial way, you can always make a purchase through our website, psychicstatic.net. Uh, anything on that goes towards funding the show, and we do really appreciate it. Thank you very much, folks. Enjoy. Hello, Paul. Paul Chastain. Hey, is it James? Yeah. Hey, how are How's you? How's it going, man? Yeah, I was just listening to you a second ago, so it's weird to talk to you. I was listening to your um, your cast you did with my old friend Ivan Julian. Oh yeah, yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that because you know you're the second person I would have spoken to that has played with Matthew Sweet. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Ivan and I go way back, but uh, I was happy to hear his new record and see that it had come out. And then I was just looking at your your past um, cast to see what you've done, you know, other things you've done, and um. And I saw Ivan on that. I'm like, I gotta check out Ivan. 
Yeah, it's very well, interesting. I knew most of that, but it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet you did. I mean, it's it's weird when uh, it's bandmates and and people that have worked to work together. It was really a um an honor for me to get to speak with him. I mean, obviously he's uh, you know an iconic kind of guitar player, uh, well known. Yeah. You know, all the way back to the Voidoids. It's it's like he's like um he's like a legend, really, in some in some ways, or at least some yeah, people would consider him that. You know, definitely. I mean, very influential, that band. And I think a lot of, I don't know if he gets credit for it or not, but uh, um, he certainly deserves credit for it because he was, he was there, you know, like, he, it's yeah. amazing. To, I'm amazed that I played with people like that, you know, like that he's my friend, you know, I can, if I see him at a show, I'm like, hey, Ivan, how's it going? You know, he remembers right. me, he knows me. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long did you guys play together? Uh, geez, you know, I don't know. That time sort of all blurs together, but um we did probably t two or three of Matthew's records together. I, I he was probably there. Uh, see, I kind I can't came and went in the in the early part. Rick Mank and I from Velvet Crush, yeah, were the rhythm section at a certain point, and then we we got Velvet Crush stuff going on, so we left and we didn't tour for like two two records, the two after Girlfriend, and okay. then we came back, and I'm not sure when Ivan joined in maybe before my time my time began again i'm not i don't remember but then i played with him from that point forward uh, until he left and i never left so <laughs> yeah but it was quite quite some time we spent some quality time in the back of the old ford econo line there the last two rows were me and him <laughs> oh yeah that's awesome so that's that's very intimate then it kind of is yeah and uh, i remember i have this great memory of um we were somewhere I want to say in the maybe in the northwest somewhere and um we had like kind of a chill time like a day off we got there early that night you know earlier the day before or something which is unusual but we got there and i went to ivan's little room and all the rooms were sort of like apartment things that had like a kitchen and stuff i think that's what i remember oh, okay. and um i remember going in there and we, you know, Ivan and I got some wine or something and we're sitting there and uh, he's like, I'm going to, I want to play something. So he starts playing me stuff. And he, one of the things he played me was, he's like, yeah, you gotta check this out. And I, and I'm pretty sure it was uh, muddy waters. And he was just teaching me basically the, the groove thing, the groove factor, you know, how, how this is like laid back and how this is, you know, how this feels and all this stuff about feel. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I, at the time I was thinking like, Oh, it's really cool. And later I thought like, that's so fucking cool, <laughs> you know, to just have someone like that, like literally telling me, teaching me about that kind of a thing, which is a thing gained through like experience and extensive listening and uh, study and stuff like that. And it was like, sure. it blows my mind later on at the time. It's just like, oh, that was fun to do. And it was really cool that, you know, and, but uh, wow, it was, I have that sort of burned in my memory of the, uh, a cool memory of Ivan. Yeah. He's a good dude, man. And a great player. What Love an amazing guy. player. Yeah, I've seen, like, I watched his documentary and, and like, just watching what he would do on that, just, like, the little bit that you get to see, I was just like, Jesus, he's, like, just so, like, fluid yeah. and just, like, understanding of the instrument. It's just, like, he, it's, like, it's, like, nothing for him. It's, like, breathing. It's sort of, like, nothing. Yeah, that's the, that's the sense. Um, I remember <laughs> one more Ivan story. When we were, were on tour with Matthew, um, there's these, um, back in the early days, before the sort of internet was really everywhere, um, we were on tour and our sound man, Ronnie had this uh, laptop, which was weird. And he was the only one in the group that had it. Right. So I borrowed it from him one night and I'm looking around online and I found the, 
operating manual and schematics that someone had posted for an LA-2A compressor limiter, which is an old 60s, um, which people still like today, and they're worth thousands of dollars, you know. So yeah. I found this, this guy I just posted from like 1963 or something like that time range. And I, I, I knew Ivan would be interested. So I called Ivan's room. I said, Ivan, I got this thing. So I said, come on over. So I showed him, <laughs> I showed him these schematics and he was like, what? What? I, I can build this. I can build this. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I, that's cool. That's, you, you should do that. It's like, no, no, now we can build it now. Like starting now, like what? Oh my God. <laughs> so, so from that point forward on the tour, because we weren't very far along in the tour yet, um, he and I would go, and usually there was like a runner, they call it a runner dispatched with the band that would sort of like go, you know, help you get stuff if you need like batteries, you needed something from outside the venue. And so they, we usually had a runner. So we would get the runner to take us to like old, um, we would find like old radio, like ham radio shops and guys like this that have all these old, parts laying around that Ivan right. knew about somehow. He knew that that would be the place. So right. we went around and we sourced parts and uh, I was in charge of sort of as the aesthetics of it. And he's like, I don't care what it looks like. I'll build it in a shoebox. I don't care. I just want it to work and be a thing. It's like, okay, well, I want it to look cool. So I'm, I'll, I'll help with that. Okay. But anyway, he, he, he did build it and I have it. I have the thing he built, the prototype. And he went on to build several of them and um, sold them to people he knew in New York studios that he had worked in and stuff. He, he would build a pair of them because they're mono wow. units. Yeah. So they're a, they're a, a photo optical type compressor. So they're they're really cool. And at that time, not a lot of people actually uh, made them. Like now, people like make a lot of sort of uh, versions of them. But uh, he was hand making them and and sourcing the parts. He wanted old transformers, you know, like new old stock things. And it was really hard, wow. I think, and hand wiring everything. So, Jesus, but he made wow. he made it on tour in the bus, like you know, soldering. You'd see smoke coming out of his bunk. There's solder. He'd be in the dressing room, you know, drilling something or soldering something or all this yeah. crazy stuff. It was very, wow. uh, it was very Ivan, very Ivan, but it worked yeah. and it's great. That's amazing. <laughs> He's a genius. Yeah. I, yeah, love, yeah, yeah. I love that ability. I love what people that have that ability because it's just like I can look at a schematic and it just looks like Chinese to me. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know what I mean, I kind of know what, what it means, but I, I can't do something like that. You know, I can't like he, he fixes amps and stuff. Like, you know, he can do all that stuff because he's he's the real deal. He can do right. it all. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Well, sorry for that little side trip there, but I was no, just that's inspired great. thinking about Ivan. Yeah, no, I bet. I mean, thanks for, for bringing it up. I mean, like, you know, that was a great conversation. Um, but, you know, speaking <laughs> of you, um, you know that I'm in Rhode Island, right? Well, I didn't know that until I was listening to the podcast with Ivan, and then I was going to ask you about that. Where yeah, are yeah. you in Providence? What, no, I'm in West Warwick. West Warwick, okay. West Warwick. You, you probably never spent any time in West Warwick. Ah, uh, well, no, but I've I've been through for sure because I lived there for about ten years. You know. Yeah. No, I know. I'm, I'm surprised we have never met. It is odd. Well, I, my time was basically the entire '90s, and then I moved out in around 2000. Uh, yeah. 2001 or 2000, I think. So, but I lived in Providence uh, most of the time. And then later I lived in uh, Narragansett. Oh, okay. Cool. For a, for a little while. Yeah. Which was very pleasant down there. I but bet. yeah, we, I mean, that's where the band, that's where Velvet Crush, my band, um, formed, even though the, the principal members were all from the Midwest. We all mm -hmm. went to Rhode Island. Um, at, we knew, um, Jeffrey, who became our guitar player, Jeffrey Underhill, um, had 
had lived out there and we we sort of connected with them and said hey we're coming to the east rick and i rick mank and i said we're moving to the east coast and we didn't really have much of a plan we had a little bit of a plan which fell through so he said well i know this guy jeffrey hmm. so i'm gonna call him so he called jeffrey who lived somewhere like over on dorance street or somewhere like that and um he said yeah come on out and you can crash at the place i live and until you get your thing figured out what you want to do or whatever and so we said okay we're coming (laughs) yeah so we did and then a little while later jeffrey became our our guitarist when we got the combo happening so yeah rhode island is near near and dear to my heart yeah i I was hoping you'd say that because i mean i i know that it's it's important obviously it was the 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 uh launching pad for for velvet crush which is kind of the band that uh you know started it all for you is that fair to say yeah yeah definitely yep that's what rick rick mank and i um had done some projects previously in he's from barrington illinois which is you know chicago area and um and i'm from champaign illinois and so we kind of hooked up through this producer who had done rick rick's rick had a band called the reverbs and i heard these recordings and i was it's kind of at the end of this, my sort of first band that I had, which was called Nines. We were like a new wave band and I was kind of coming out of that. And I had some songs I wanted to record and some mutual friends said, um, Hey, have you heard this, this reverbs record? They did it like in Schaumburg, Illinois. I was like, what? And so, um, I called that guy who, this guy, Michael Freeman, who was the engineer and producer of it. And and he said, yeah, you got to meet my friend. Rick. After I talked to him, you know, he's like, you got to meet my friend, Rick. You guys are like saying the same stuff. You got to talk. Yeah. You got to you got to meet Rick. Oh, that's cool. And and so I did meet Rick and I did go and record with uh, Michael. And we, I did some solo things there, um, which became part of my first uh, EP that I ever released. But um, that started my relationship with Rick, which is still ongoing to this point forward. So he was my creative partner. Right. And um, let's see, where were we? Uh, the He lived in Champaign for a while, and we kind of had little things where we did recordings and really singles, and um, kind of had a little live stuff going on once in a while with various incarnations. <laughs> but then at one point we said, we got to get out of here. It's, we can't, you know, it's so hard to like do shows and stuff anywhere. You like, you know, we're so, it's so far apart. Right. Like it's two and a half hours to Chicago from Champaign and it's about the same as St. Louis. And then after that, you're like, well, the next the next town is quite far. If you know to any place that you'd really play. Right. And we thought, you know, at East Coast, you can play all over the place and, you know, fairly easily. And um, yeah. you can go to like Boston area or uh, there. And so we ended up in Providence, which was much cheaper <laughs> than Boston. And and we did play all over the East Coast. It was it was easy to do. We ended up playing a lot in New York, which mm-hmm. was really probably a really good thing. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, all over Philly and DC and up and down I-95 right. there. It's all it's all pretty tight over here. It's pretty great. Yeah. And and Providence at that time, not a lot was was going on. There were some bands and stuff, but there wasn't really much of a scene and it was pretty quiet, but it was very uh it was a good place to kind of start because of that, I think. And so hmm. we we uh, got Jeffrey to join and then we just had a rehearsal space that was in this like food storage area. You know, it's down by like the, where Joanne's Silvertop. Do you know where that diner was? Oh, was or, it the Vinji building? Uh, I don't think it was that building, but it was down in that area. You know, oh, there's okay. like food, oh, food the warehouse. 
stuff. Yeah, yeah that, that, I, that building I, got tore down recently, unfortunately. Oh no. Yeah. But, uh, so we had a we had a little space that we rented out, which was in this building that was basically just filled with potatoes. Okay. Like yeah, these yeah. giant things of potatoes, and um, and anyway, they rented the space that wasn't like somebody rented it for an office, and we converted it into like just a little jamming space, and that became our rehearsal space, and we spent a real lot of time in there. Yeah. you know working on our stuff so it was great wow. and we love providence we have the we all feel very fond of providence yeah well look i, I have a couple of things i want to ask you about that i mean considering we're kind of starting right there in the conversation um we were we're going to be talking about the dbs uh stand yeah. for decibels that's the album you chose so i picked up uh chris damey's book a spy in oh, the house of loud I have that. oh great yeah yeah, I uh, I picked it up to to try to find out more about this album because you know it's a, I guess it's fair to say that it's a it's a, a iconic record at this point. It definitely has has some some, it's got a, this classicness to it. It's obviously well known amongst like music fans. It's, yeah, it certainly is iconic to me, and and I gotta say, I, I was looking for. Uh, songs and albums and stuff to talk about for other podcasts and stuff. And, and uh, I had kind of not, I haven't really heard this record before right now, you know, for a long time. But once I started thinking about it, I was like, Oh my God, like that's a huge. Yeah. I was trying to think of things that were really influential at the time. And I thought of some other things that, that certainly were that are kind of related to this <laughs> whole thing. But I remember that this record and, and the next one repercussion, they were just so, uh, yeah, it's it's got a classic thing to it, and and I, and I feel like now even listening, it doesn't sound really very dated to me. It sounds just weird and cool, like it always did, and it sounds like guys operating on a whole different plane oh, yeah. of creativity and existence. And I'm, I, I, it made me inspired, and it made me like curious about what they were hearing or listening to, and all that stuff. And then. Right. Just like everything about it is so cool, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the songs, yeah. songwriting, great. Uh, just the the ideas in the in the recording, you know, the little bits of stuff and all that. It's so awesome. It's like a yeah. perfect record, you know. And I don't right. know if people think that. Uh, I know there's some people that do, but I don't really know what people think about the record. But it is. It seems to be not um, available, like in in the uh, streaming world. Yeah, which is just a yeah. crime. Like, what's up with that? I don't know, man. You can get, you can find it on YouTube if you really need yeah, to that's, listen that's to it. That's where I was finding it, but like, because I, right. I don't know where my copy is, you know, from long ago. But, um, God, it's it should be out there because it's really, and you can hear that it influenced just like hundreds of bands and artists. Tons, you know? tons, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's the, the, the I think the probably the biggest thing about this album is that you know it's a very influential record. You know, I mean, yeah. obviously it did it did a number on you. Um, Deserve it, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, First of all, speaking about like going back to to what we were saying about Ivan Julian, I consider you know an honor to speak with him and and you know because he's kind of got this legendary status. I think the same of you. Like I really oh. wanted to talk with you because I mean we're you know if you you being from Rhode Island, um, especially in the '90s, there's certainly like this this mystique I have because I'm I'm like I was like too young in the 90s that I didn't really get out to go to the shows unfortunately but I remember like looking at the Phoenix 
And oh, like, yeah, seeing all the listings and I was just like seeing all the band names. I was like, oh, man, I wish I could fucking go to that show. It sounds like like I don't know who those bands are, but I want to see these bands. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, and so, um, you know, I, I think that, that your your history with Velvet Crush in the Providence music scene is, is uh, you know, definitely <laughs> a memorable and lasting one. So oh, cool. Thank you for saying that. No, absolutely. I mean, like I've been wanting to talk with somebody from Velvet Crush for for a long time now. I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to find you guys, really. So, um, well, sorry about that. Yeah, we're we're um, pretty good at um, kind of uh, self sabotaging or anything having to do with our career. But, um, um, well, I'm happy to to be speaking with you, and maybe maybe we can release some Velvet Crush music in the near future. We just did. Um, we just released uh, the 30th anniversary of Teenage Symphony Sagad record, oh, and. Yeah. And last month we were in Spain uh, doing a tour to kind of promote that and just to because we hadn't done that in quite a long time. So we we did a tour in Spain, which was great. And we had our old friend, another um, band that you probably would know, this this guy, Dave Gibbs from the band Gigolo Ants, who oh, are yeah. from Boston. Yep. He was he used to he used to do shows with us, play quite often. But he was the lead singer and guitarist from that band. But we used to borrow him and do um we always like to do four piece uh, things when we did like a tour, like mm -hmm. we would play three piece a lot just to go to, you know, up and down the East coast. But when we started doing touring, we always had a fourth member and um, Dave was one of our go-to guys. There were, there were just a handful of guys, but um, Dave did quite a lot of shows. So he hadn't played with us in, you know, since the mid nineties. And so we, we asked him to, if he'd do it and he, he agreed. And it was really fun to uh, get back with him and, and also get back with you know the with Rick and Jeffrey and just do it and um, but it was in in a great atmosphere in Spain that the Spanish fans are sort of I don't know they're like the forever fans kind of thing where they you know mm -hmm. well we haven't made a record in twenty five years or thirty years and then then and they just will still come you know it's right. really amazing and it's really from the heart you feel like yeah. with them. Yeah, well, uh, much like crowd, much like right? Japanese fans, I think. Yeah. And right, right. Great. So it was a great place to go and, and do that. And um, so hopefully we will um, do some stuff in the future and we can come and chat with you again. That'd be great, man. I would I, I really love that. Um, but so speaking again about about Providence, like, you know, how you guys mm -hmm. moved from from Illinois, like the, 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 the cities in Illinois that you both you all respectively came from. Right. Um, there's a point in this book where Chris Damey is kind of speaking about um, you know, thinking about making a living at music, like he's kind of, you know, realizing like, this is my passion, this is something I want to do. But uh, him and the rest of his band, uh, coming from like the Winston Salem area of North of North Carolina, you know, it's just like, there's, it's, it's like a desert, it's like, there's nothing there culturally for, for any of them to, to, to latch onto. So obviously, he moves to New York City to make a go of trying to find a way into making music. Um, right. So I think that's a typical mindset of like many entertainers, even today. I mean, um, so yeah, you got to go just, to the coast. <laughs> yeah. Well, the coast or, or some major cities. I mean, I I think maybe some people may have thought of Chicago as that. Maybe I'm not sure. sure how yeah. it was and, at the know, time. Nashville, obviously Nashville and, yep. um, you know, Austin fits that description. And um, yeah, there's these, I there's mean, these, these, these areas, these, these like, you know, bubbles of, of where stuff seems know. to be happening and you want to be part of that thing. You know, I remember, right. you know, when REM was, was first starting to happen, everybody wanted to go to Athens, you know, right. That was like, people were like, Oh man, I'm going to, I think I'm going to move to Athens. You know, that was like, it seemed like, how could that not be cool? You know, that's got to, there's, 
there's got to be a bunch of stuff going on there. So it was like that. Right. I remember that in the beginning yeah. of it. You know. So is that how you felt about Providence? I mean, like, was Providence the destination or was it, there something it wasn't, else? You know, it's kind of a sordid story, but um, uh, Rick Mank had a, he has, he's like our sort of originally from, from the East area, from like New York somewhere, I think New York, upstate New York. But um, let's see, he has relatives in the kind of Boston area. And I, mm, we, we were going to go and live at a, a house that was sort of owned by somebody in the family that wasn't really being used. And we were going to sort of be caretakers because we knew we didn't have any money or anything at the beginning. Oh, yeah. So we really needed someplace to do a soft landing like that. Um, you know, I, I, when I moved out, I just, I took a bag of clothes and a guitar literally. And then, and like I sold these PA speakers. So I had like $400 and I took that and I, took a flight on people's express, which you may not even remember, but it was like some really cheap discount airline. Yeah. So we didn't have anything and, and we were set to do this thing. And then did like 11th hour, uh, somebody in his extended family, um, that was involved in that stuff, um, objected to it. And oh. so it put the, put the kibosh on the whole thing. And so I was already, you know, it was in motion already. I was like, I'm, I'm all but out the door, right? So, <laughs> and he was, I think he was already, he might've been already out there is what I remember. Cause he had been doing some stuff with Matthew Sweet uh, early on. Anyway, so I said, uh, well, I'm going to come out. So where, what can we do? And so they said, well, I'm going to call my, this guy, Jeffrey, who I know kind of, you know, a little bit. And he lives in Providence, which I don't know anything about, but it's close to Boston and um Hmm. not too far from new york and stuff so so it just was sort of like that it just happened like that because we knew jeffrey and jeffrey lived there <laughs> and right. i don't know why actually i don't know why jeffrey was there i don't really remember why he was already there but he already lived there for a few years okay. and so he sort of knew stuff and people and people in the scene and all that so it was really good that we hooked up with him and then uh, obviously he was a musician and became you know part of our little plan or plot <laughs> yeah and what year was that that would have been like uh well we mm, i think we started in sort of like late 89 okay sort of officially trying to kind of do it uh, with jeffrey and we so that means i probably moved out maybe a year before that or something all right so it's on the it cusp of the 90s yeah just before and uh so we started working I don't know when we started recording stuff, but we, I think we, we think the official, um, we, we cite this as, as 89. So I think, and I, my recollection is that it was kind of later 89. So somewhere in there. Yeah. Just, just on the cusp, as you said. Yeah. So this is like, this is uh, like kind of weird. Like, so you chose this record and obviously you had to reach far back to, to kind of even consider this record. And uh, the similarities between your life and what I've read about Chris Damey and Peter Holzapple <laughs> are like almost mirrored. Wow. Yeah, I it's kind of crazy. Book. I have that book. I got to get that. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, cause you guys like, so, you know, both moving from from somewhere far away, trying to reach this destination to to make a name for yourselves. Um, even when you signed your deal, like, you know, Velvet Crush signed with uh, Creation, right? Right. From the UK. And they signed That's with Albion or Albion. I don't know how you pronounce that. Yeah. Albion. Yeah. Also from the UK. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and you know, um, that's weird. <laughs> kind of, kind of fall under the radar. Let's like, like, you know, 
like influential and, and important to to a, like a no, number of people. You had a good good run, uh, a good career, which obviously led you into uh, the the career that you're at currently, and um, that you're still kind of like like living off of. And 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 you have this this back catalog that people still re like re like refer to. Like you know, you obviously you're celebrating your 30th anniversary of um, Teenage Symphonies for, uh, for God, right? Yep. So That's I right. mean. Yeah, it's just like you guys have this like very parallel kind of trajectory. It's kind of interesting. I never thought of that, but that's that's cool. I mean, I'm in good company then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, like, have you ever met these guys? Like, have you ever worked with them or played with them? You know what? It's it's weird because I I know a, a lot of other people or, you know, several other people in that same area, like, you know, the the first and foremost, Mitch Easter. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't. I don't think I've ever really met any of the DBs. Um, hmm. Sadly, okay. I, I don't think I have. I admire all of them. And I know, you know, Will, uh, the drummer, played drums for Matthew for a while when uh, when Rick was uh, away. One of the one of the earlier, I think he came in quite early on because Matthew loved the DBs. And he's like, who can I get to play drums? And it's like, oh, Will Rigby, I'm going to ask him, you know. Oh, wow. OK. But that wasn't so, while you were in the band. No, no. When I was in the band, I, it was just re me and Rick. And I, I, I don't know. I don't think we, because we were always doing the same project together. So he was, I was bass player and he was drummer. And then when I left, um, another, a couple of their bass players came in initially, eventually um, it kind of stayed on this guy, Tony Marcico, who became the bass player from that point forward. Then when I rejoined Matthew Singh in between Velvet Crush stuff or after, you know, we were kind of done with Teenage Symphonies. Um, I played other stuff. I played guitar and I always sing, sing with them. And, uh, but I, I played like extra guitar and I played keyboards on one tour and just different stuff just to kind of, I don't know. He let me be in the band, I guess. And then eventually Tony left and I took over bass again, once, once again, full circle. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, weird, weirdly enough, close proximity <laughs> and unfortunately kind of missing each other. Um, yeah, I wish I, I, I still, well, there's still time to meet yeah. them, but I, I would like to, I know, you know, we worked with, um, Velvet Crest worked with Mitch Easter on two records, and we spent considerable amount of time in uh, Winston-Salem area, and I know Mitch still sees Chris, you know, a lot, and his friends with him, and I don't know about the other guys or, or not, but, um, but I just never, I just never met him. I know, you know, that Tim and Bobby from the Windbreakers. I worked with them. Um, I know Don Dixon. I know you know so many so many other guys that are in common with this, but I don't think I ever met these these particular geniuses. So from weird. Down. Yeah. Well, it'll eventually happen. I assume it has to. But yeah, I was you know just listening to this like a, a couple of weeks ago. This record, I I I well, just looking at the titles, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know the songs. I know every song, you know, pretty well, but even though I haven't heard it for a really long time. And then I started playing them, you know, yeah. Uh, at that point. And that's when I decided I had to choose this for the record, for the one yeah. to talk about. I was like, oh God, this one. And then this brings back all these memories and all these um, thoughts about when I was just trying to formulate how to do stuff and what mm. I wanted to do. And then this stuff really spoke to me. I was like, how can you make music like this? I want to make music like that. What, what do you, how, you know, it's like, it's, it, I'm so naive and green and it's like, you know, it's so mysterious. I'm like, I can't understand how it's like the same feeling. Like when I first, even before this heard like a, a Beatles record or something like that, where you're like, how, do, how, how can they even think of this? Like how, you know, like that's, right. I have this feeling about this record 
It's like, how can they think of these things? These are so great. All the little production bits and stuff, which right. maybe I, I appreciate more now than I did then. But I, I just loved everything kind of about it. And yeah. uh, in, in a way, it sort of led led me to that area and to to Mitch and who, 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 you know, Rick also loved all that music and stuff. And so when we it came time for Velvet Crest to decide to, to put forth the ideas for a producer for the record to the label. And we said, we'd love for Mitch Easter to do it. And so they agreed, but it was sort of an easy decision, you know, cause we were, it was easy for us to get, go to think, to go to that place somehow, both of us, right. you know, and, um, and then we actually ran into Mitch in England. We were over there doing something touring, I think. And, uh, and he was there um, working with this band called Moose and he was listening to them. We were at a rehearsal space in London. He he was there, you know, listening to them rehearse because they were getting ready to. They were doing like pre-production or something. And and he he was in the building. And Rick comes out and goes, "Oh, I think I think I just saw Mitch." I think like, Mitch Mitch Easter. What? He's like, "Yeah, I think it's him. He's here." I'm like, what? What the fuck? Why is he? Why is Mitch Easter? That's crazy. Right. Because you know we had been thinking about like th this kind of stuff. Like, what you know, what are we going to do when we make a record and all this. And he, and he was there. It was crazy. It was a really a nutty thing of all the places, you know, all the, of all the gin joints, you know? And uh, so we talked to him for a little bit and he actually, uh, I think he came to a show that we had, we did. And um, yeah, it was really cool. And he sort of, I think preliminarily agreed to do, you know, yeah. if we, if we could get him on the list, <laughs> he would, you know, if we could, if we could submit his name and stuff. And he said, yeah. So it was a really weird um, coincidence, but, it was seemed like, you know, it was the cosmic decision that was already made somehow that we would work with him. <laughs> yeah, that's great. But all that, you know, through, you know, Let's Active, and DBs and REM and all these things that sort of all conspired, um, I think, in our subconscious to think that a w one way to make a great record would be to go to that place with those people and, you know, right. and do that yeah. stuff. Oh, but we did, sure, you know, when we did, when we did the basic tracks for Teenage Symphonies, we recorded, we didn't really need to do this, but we went to um, this place called Reflection in Charlotte where Mitch had worked with R.E.M. and did some stuff there with him in a different studio. And then we came back to Mitch's drive-in, which was his original studio that he had at that time, which was in his parents, at his parents' house, which was pretty, pretty funny and fun. Yeah. Um, now he's got a new place, not new, but uh, he has got his own place in his, by, at his house, but um at that point, that was the classic one where those records were made, and we'd see the credits like I made, recorded at the drive-in. Like, yeah, we got to go there. Like, you know, yeah, so, that's awesome. Yeah, that's so crazy. Like, mm -hmm. Hey, so anyway. so tell me, I I want to get into your your early history too for a little bit. Um, okay. so you were saying you grew up in Illinois, in which city? Uh, Champaign, Illinois. It's where the University of Illinois is. Okay, and that's where you were like born and raised. I'm, 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 well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, but um, oh. or Missouri, as I'm allowed to say, because I'm from there. <laughs> but Kansas City, Missouri. But I moved to Illinois to like Peoria area when I was uh, like maybe second, second grade or something, and then we lived there for a couple of years, and then we moved to Champaign for my dad's work, <clears throat> mm. and then I grew up. So I basically grew up in Champaign. Yeah. Okay. And so, what was uh, music in the house like growing up? <laughs> Music in the house? Uh, well, 
I don't remember a ton of music um, from my parents. My mom actually played guitar when she was a kid. And so she still kind of played once in a while. When we went to see my grandpa and stuff like that, she would play guitar. But um, I have an older brother who's six years older than me. So he is probably mostly responsible for exposing me to music, you know, the, the, the oh, older brothers. Yeah. So, so when I was younger, I would hear stuff that he had gotten. So I heard Beatles stuff and I, you know, we had monkeys singles, stuff like that from him. It's like, Oh, okay. this is great. You know, so I loved those things. And, and he, he also uh, played trumpet like in the band, you know, and which I followed in his footsteps and did that too. Um, so I would hear, other kinds of music like that around, you know, like um, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, one of one of my favorites. But I learned to play. Actually, I I would play his horn. You know, I sort of learned to play, but just on my own. I learned to kind of play by ear and to like make the sound of it. So I decided I would play that later on, as a result. But I would hear like a lot of. Um, I think I was exposed to more sort of jazz stuff um, through his influence and his. As, you know, as he got older, he would start getting. He was playing more music in school and stuff. And he started listening mm -hmm. to stuff like jazz stuff, like, you know, like, um, I don't know, like Count Basie stuff. And then on into like Maynard Ferguson, who's a trumpet guy and band leader guy and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And so that all influenced me. And I, I do love, you know, there's some jazz stuff that I do really love, but I think that it was really, there wasn't a lot of rock music kind of stuff going on apart from my older brother's um, singles that he would buy. And yeah. we did have some. I remember. I, I really remember the Monkey singles because he must have really liked them because we had several, and they were on the Cold Gems label. You know, the, it's like a little yeah. orange label. I can see it in my mind, and um, that probably influenced me. And then just the radio. You know, we actually did listen to the radio back in the, that time. So sure, uh, yeah. That, and there was all kinds of cool stuff on it. So yeah, that was so, my early, yeah. So your mom was a guitar player. What about your dad? He didn't didn't like music or wasn't into music very much. Or he didn't play. He didn't play anything. He he uh, he could really whistle really well. I remember that. <laughs> he, he could do that crazy sort of like professional whistling, and I don't know why or how he could do that. But oh. um, uh, you know, I don't think he really played an instrument uh, too much growing up or anything like that. So it was mostly my mom. My mom's side of the family was musical. Her brother played a little, and in there, you know, they lived out in, uh, rural. Missouri and when they grew up and um people sort of you know entertained themselves in that time so they were, when we yeah. go to visit my grandfather at their house there there was like this old player piano that you could also play and they you know there's pictures of them playing guitars and stuff so I think it was like the family jamboree you know you'd sit around and play because there was no tv and there was you right. know maybe there was a radio but maybe not and uh so is that kind of that kind of playing, but but they were more musical. My mom's side, I guess. Hmm. Okay. So then, what was uh, like your brother and your mother, I guess? But were was that it as far as like kind of things that directed you towards getting into music? And because you must have kind of uh, found your own way into like certain bands or or groups or something at that time. Yeah, right? I mean, I just sort of liked it, and I, you know, like I said, I learned to play his his horn, his trumpet from just kind of doing it. And then I was really interested in uh, making sounds and things. And, and, um, and I could sort of play things. Like I, if I could go to somebody's house that had a piano, I would sit and I, it was fascinating, you know, and I would, I could play little melody things. And then I started getting really fascinated with like harmonies, the way harmony worked and sounded mm -hmm. and like, what, why, why is that? Why is it cool? Like, you know, 
Right. And so that kind of stuff I was really into. And I sort of had an aptitude of playing. I could play different things kind of a little bit. You know, you can pick it up and kind of make sense of it. And hmm. so I started playing bass and and got a guitar. Actually, I got a guitar first, I guess, and tried to play it. And then I started playing bass a little bit. But um, just because I like to kind of do it. And then as far as the sound of stuff, I got fascinated by by just the uh, how you make a song. It seemed just like some magical potion thing you know magical conjuring and then also like i said harmony stuff so i started listening to well the beatles had quite a lot of harmony so that you know that was a great starting point and then but i remember being really fascinated with like simon and garfunkel which mm. i guess we had records of maybe my mother or my brother one of them had records and um and you know that was just two guys singing with a guitar right and so i was like wow and i remember on one of one of the records an early one you could actually turn the, you could pan the thing hard left and you'd hear just Paul singing and you could pan it hard right and you'd hear just Art singing. Oh, and wow. I, yeah. the coolest thing ever, you know, so I'd like, I'd turn off the main, you know, because I know the melody, that's Paul's part. So I'm going to sing a pull, you know, just listen to Art and I'll try to sing with it. So it's like, that was really cool to me. It was sort of like doing almost like multi-track recording, like with singing with another voice. And yeah. Oh, that's and then cool I did track. become, then I did become fascinated with, um, how to record it as well so i started getting into trying to record stuff and um you know like i bought <laughs> i bought a reel to reel uh, tape recorder at a garage sale and i remember trying to um put material like tin foil or something over the erase head of it so i could multi-track so i could you know do sound on sound with myself Oh, okay. Didn't, that didn't really work out, but the, the concept was sound, but it didn't really work. Out. <laughs> so I started liking doing that kind of stuff too, which I still, you know, do like to do that stuff. So, hmm. okay. Which is why another reason maybe I was attracted to the DBs thing because the production on this record is really awesome. You know, there's all these like it's... little quirky bits and just a sound that comes here and maybe it doesn't happen again or just the choices they made. And yeah. Uh, uh, it's just like I said, like uh, on another level, just on another plane, you know, Absolutely. somehow. And yeah. this is their first thing that they did, so it's like, right, you know, the first as as this group. So it's just mind blowing, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like like kind of like you, um, Chris Damey had a lot of um, a lot of experience with the recording before he moved to New York. He was actually doing a lot of like recording in in North Carolina, just like he has a yeah. like a TAC like four track, you know. Uh, a cassette deck i believe so yeah he, he was very into uh the idea of, of recording music and and kind of got some experience with the the college he was going to you know recording some bands locally just kind of making some demos for them so he was kind of already kind of like getting a feel for engineering yeah, ultimately yeah. becoming a producer ultimately you know well they when... definitely had a grasp on uh production ideas and stuff you know i don't know yeah. i don't know how they I don't know the, the history of how they achieved the stuff or whatever, but, but, uh, you know, both, I mean, all, maybe all four members, you know, <laughs> can do that. But that, but the, this record, if you listen to just one song, you're like, Oh my God, there's these things going on and the way right. they structure the harmonies and when the harmonies come in and just everything about it. And all filtered through other cool stuff that they listen to. I'm sure like, you know, big star and things like that. And um, oh, just yeah. like, wow, just so many, so many cool um, elements of it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll probably try to get into some of that. Um, we should probably go ahead and, and uh, get into the record. Um, I really wanted to ask you a lot about Providence, like for the time that you came in here, because like uh -huh. 
that's kind of a, an area that I, I, I'm interested in just because I wasn't really active at that time. Right. Uh, like, you know, so you're from, you're from Providence. Uh, yeah, I, I was born and raised in Cranston really, okay. but, uh, I moved into Providence when I was 18. So that was like 98. Uh huh. So, uh, you know, I missed, like I said, I was like, I kind of missed all the era. Like I saw the names, I saw what was happening, but I didn't yeah. go. So, I mean, what did you feel about those bands at the time? Cause like, you know, uh, early nineties, I'm assuming along with Velvet Crush, aside from, from just, uh, you know, some of the, the pop type bands that were happening, uh, who else was there that you, like you remember? Um, well, there was, a uh, like six finger satellite. Yep. Uh, um, the guitar player of which Pete Phillips, uh, played in Velvet Crush in the later stages of Velvet Crush there, um, when we made the record um, um, Heavy Changes, he was in the band at that point, actually a member of the band. Okay. Uh, there was a band called Medicine Ball. Oh, right. Kind of heavy, heavy stuff that was cool. And um, there was um, Backwash, I remember. Oh, I just got their record. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'm that trying to remember. Pete, Pete Burr. Pete Burr, right? Yep, yep. Pa he, he passed away recently. I heard that. Very sad. He was yeah. a good guy, yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah. So those guys too. were all around in the beginning of that, our time there. And um, we sort of all somehow congealed together and made a scene. There was really kind of a scene going on at one point. It wasn't initially, yeah. but it became a scene. And there was this guy, Victor Brown, who owned this place called this hotel with a bar in it. It was called the Church House Inn. And he started to do uh, have bands there. That was his goal is to have bands. And so all the band and so some of the some of the uh, in fact, several of the people in bands like worked at the bar with 10 bar, especially during the shows. And yeah. uh, he would do things to promote that sort of community, which was really helpful and cool. And I think that um, Tina fan club um, played there and maybe we played with them or something. I'm not sure, but that might have been when we met them. But I think right. they might have come and played at that club. So he would that was very cool because then all the musicians were actually in this one room you know right. like like a lot of the guys from the you know that were in bands and and the solo people and whatever from the scene would would actually come to events like that and you'd see those, them at other shows too at at club babyhead or the rocket as it was called and uh living room and stuff but it was cool to have uh that guy victor sort of coalesce people together and then even even help out by it's like yeah well the the drummer from backwash tonight is your bartender or something like, you know it'd be like that kind of a thing you know like yeah, yeah. so it was pretty cool and it made uh, that along with other things made it kind of a cool little community which uh, i don't know if it existed before we came there but we once we got there we it had started happening i think and with all the other bands and it was it was pretty supportive everyone was really supportive of, of each other I, I think and yeah uh, that was that was cool yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, it reminds me of like some of this stuff, you know, thinking about like New York City in the uh, the the mid to late seventies, um, like that that kind of like new movement kind of starting to build. Because I mean, from what I can tell and what I remember, like yeah, there was a pop there for a little bit, and then I I don't know if like direction got like turned towards Boston or something, and then like Boston was the hot place for a while. New York uh, was always there. You know, New York was always there. Yeah. It's always like the destination. I can't remember. I mean, Boston always had its bands too. Oh, I know another band, Scarce, was another band from oh, Providence right. that yeah. we were friends with. Yeah, they were great. Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure because at that at a certain point in the later '90s, we we kind of weren't 
as local, you know, like after Teenage Symphonies, that was in the mid nineties, you know, we, we ended up touring <clears throat> around like, you know, for like over a year off and on, we were playing in you know, Europe and in the U S a lot and, and sort of everywhere in Japan. And then I felt like we were kind of less local. We still mm -hmm. did local shows occasionally, but, but I, so I don't know, I wasn't as plugged into what was going on in the scene at that moment, which, you know, Jeff or Jeffrey or, or Rick might, might've been more aware of that, but I was kind of really, um, I was really kind of hunkered down trying to like deal with, um, for me, it was like kind of hard to always have songs for the next thing and to work on that. And I didn't have a hand on doing that when we were on the road. And we really spent like a whole long time touring teenage symphonies. And it was, I, I couldn't write during that whole time. So right. it was very difficult. And so when we weren't doing that, I, I really spent a lot of time in my own mind just trying to <laughs> figure out, you know, try to get some ideas together and get back to that. Cause it was, it was a lot of work during the touring and I wasn't, I wasn't able to kind of, do both at the same time at, at that point i didn't know how to handle it i guess so yeah yeah i can imagine i don't know, what was, going, I don't know yeah. what was going on around me as much you know i'm kind of oblivious to a lot of the stuff that was going on around during, right. at, from that point kind of for a few years you know all right cool well that's fine i mean like you know i don't want to i don't want to like you know uh, uh beat that dead horse of like the province uh 90s scene either but um we're going to try to tackle the record the stands for decibels okay. now and i'm going to i'm going to ask you about your latest project, The Small Square, and your latest album, uh, Ours and Others, through these songs. Okay. All right. So um, uh, I unfortunately i am going to skip black and white right off the bat because um, I couldn't figure anything out for it. Like it's okay. okay. A lot of these songs, like unfortunately, and I was like, you know, like, so I'm listening to this album for the first time. Like this is my introduction to it. And it's a it's a definitely a great record. I can definitely see a lot of like a positive and like awesome aspects about it. But for the most part, lyrically, these songs are straightforward, you know? Yeah. And like that led me to think like, oh, man, this is going to be a very personal conversation to have with Paul. Well, I mean, I think I think some of the lyrics are straightforward. You know, the thing is that the two guys writing uh, Peter Holzapple, one writer and Chris Stamey, the other writer, um, yeah. Chris's songs are a little less straightforward and and i don't you may not always you know like the lyrics they, they may not be complicated but they're a little more um Shrouded. a little more mystery it, 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 yeah like um Poetic just like abstract, a little more yeah. abstract and and um you get the meaning but they're kind of shattered a little more because he was kind of more into that kind of stuff and the peters are little more right up front you know like the fight and things like that so mm. i think there's both elements which i also liked about you know i I like direct lyrics, but I also like not, not direct, you know, not like uh literal things too. So that, that all appealed to me yeah. and still does, you know, For sure, I'm, I'm yeah. just, I'm, I'm kind of astounded at how, how many of the little things about the, this, these songs um, really stuck with me, you know, now looking at it uh, 30 years later, you know, I'm like, yeah, right? wow, or you know, even 40 years later, even so it, it's pretty crazy. Uh, actually, I'm kind of reeling oh, from shit. it. That's what I forgot to ask you. When did you find this record? Uh, it must have been not long after this came out in like '81, I think. Yeah, maybe think so. so. It was probably yeah, not January too long 81. after that. I don't remember how I came to it exactly, um, but um, probably heard some on the radio here in, or there in Champaign uh, at the College Station WPGU. There was this guy by the name of John Ginoli who DJed there. 
And he's a guy who founded a band called the Pansy Division later on in life. But at that point, he was just a music enthusiast, you know, uh, okay. and he would dig up these records and stuff from from bands that I would never have found for quite a while. And he mm. had a show on, which I used to listen to. And on his show, he would play stuff like this. He would play these kind of things. And not all from, not all pop things, all different, all different kind of stuff, but it would be like, what is this record? You know, like that kind of thing. So every right. song would be like, what is this one? You know, so yeah. quite possibly I heard it uh, from there first. I, I don't remember specifically, but that would be exactly the kind of thing that he would play. Okay. And I'm sure he played it. So I would say, so, so probably, you know, 81, 82, I, I probably heard it. Okay, cool. So um, let me see. Let's get into the next song, Dynamite. <laughs> Dynamite. So, so that's, that's a Chris song. Yep. Um, so from Chris's, from Chris's book, uh, Spy in the House of Loud, uh, he says about this song, quote, there is no real narrative to the, the song's lyrics. I had seen a newspaper report about an IRA car bombing around that time. The catchphrase of comedian Jimmy J.J. Walker might have played into it, too. And he, yeah, he goes on further to address a couple of other passages in the song, but ultimately say, quote, I don't think it will reward much further scrutiny, but it's a good example of writing with a sound in mind, end quote. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't really know what it's about. This, the lyrics don't really have a, yeah, like a story or anything like you said, but um, it does have a great uh, sound and the mm. way he sang it, he sang it like in a certain way. Um, it's like, nah, nah. he kind of swooped up to all the things and the harmonies are all like that. And then yeah, just the arrangement of the song is really cool. It's got these stop parts where the drums just go you know, in between the sections and the drums have like a slapback echo on them. It's really cool. The whole, just, you know, I think, I think with this song, it's really like a sound that, like you said, actually that's that I kind of agree with that. Um, it just kind of appeals to you on that level. Right. Yeah. But so, so I have to ask you with that quote in mind, uh, do you ever write with sound in mind? Um. <laughs> Kind of. I mean, maybe not in the same way he was he was talking about, but like uh, when I a lot of times when I come up with a little idea, um, I hear something about it, you know, right away, like like how I want to do it eventually if I ever finish the song. You know, this is like a little bit or something. And I hear like, oh, yeah, kind of this kind of a thing or this should be, you know, I want to play 12 string on this or some kind of thing like that. It often mm -hmm. happens. But um I don't know. It seems like his was maybe more complete. Like he had some kind of more complete vision. Mine are more like yeah. fragmented. Like just I have a piece of like, oh, I think this guitar thing should sound kind of like this. So I, you know, I kind of do. I, I yeah, know. yeah. Because I think maybe like what he means by sound too is just like kind of the like the way like maybe even lyrically sound like how <laughs> the the words kind of like like oh yeah so they all work kind of off rhyme of each other. Yeah, yeah, they, yep, they yep. rhyme. They they kind of like flow together. Like uh -huh. especially with what you're saying, like the way that he he kind of like they do the harmonies and they kind of like 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 pitch themselves up into the songs. Uh -huh. It's like the eh, yeah. So I see I see what you mean. So he was saying he was talking about that as the the sound of words, um, yeah. probably. So well, yeah, because they all kind of rhyme with dynamite. So maybe that's why there's no right. no real literal meaning because they just kind of have to end with the i sound <laughs> right but yeah, yeah. That, but the track does have a cool sound to it it's got like i said the echo yeah uh, kind of thing in the drums and, and which it, is really, it's really kind of you know like really flattery yeah it's cool and, and i'll tell you this book it really actually kind of reads like a fucking like a like a schematic almost like it's it, it reads like a textbook 
because he goes into a lot of detail about like some of the recording process and some of like the things that they were trying and, and doing at the time, which oh, I'm cool. just like, this is an engineer's dream. Like, like I, I respect it. I like it. I think it's interesting, but it, like, it's a little dry. Right. I sounds like I would like it. I got to get that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Go for it, man. I mean, it's, it's good. It's a good read, uh, but you know, it, it's just like, it's, it's, it's meaty. It's got a, it's almost, dead. almost technical, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very right. Um, all right, well, let's move on to the next song, uh, She's Not Worried. Uh, She's Not Worried. I think that's another Chris song, maybe. Um, yep, it is. Uh, I just like, yeah, I like the sentiment of the song. Um, and I like the sound, the overall sound of it is, is cool. Um, yeah, just saying, like, don't, you know, she's not worrying about it now. I'm not worrying about it now. It's cool. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's not a huge... Um, you know, heavy meaning or anything, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the songs have this kind of quality where they're just sort of effortlessly, you know, born into the world. And this, I think this kind of feels, so it feels like a song that has been around for a long time, but it, you know, yeah. they made it up, right? You know what I mean? It has right. a familiarity and an ease well, to it. The whole record kind of flows like that to me. Yeah. Do you think that that has anything to do with like, cause, cause my immediate impression from hearing this song was that, um, that it sounds like like a zombies tribute, like there's some elements in it that definitely catch me. That I'm just like, this kind of sounds almost exactly like like a part of a zombie song. It kind of does, yeah. Uh, I didn't think of that, but um, I, I'm sure they must have loved uh, Odyssey and Oracle, like like yep. all of us do. Um, yes, that's true. Yeah, could be. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not sure where all their influences. They're kind of all smushed together. So I, but that's interesting. That's a yeah. very astute of you there, James. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's just like, you know, inspiration and, and like, uh, like inspiration for writing comes from all places. And, and you know, it's it's not like I'm saying that he maybe directly grabbed it from the zombies, but, you know, it's just, it leaks in, right? It kind of seeps into your mind. and Right, which is, eventually... I think, the way, you know, it's kind of the way it works with, you know, songwriters. I don't, I think people don't usually anyway think of like, I'm going to use this thing from this song. Sometimes you do that, but like, usually yeah. it's like, it's just part of your makeup that you, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're building yeah. blocks. And so this sounds cool to you. Why? Well, maybe because it's like a zombies thing, you know, right, but you right. don't think of that when you're doing it, you know? So later on you go, Oh, maybe I did, you know, like, well, maybe well let, me, let me bring this to your attention then. I mean, like, so I was listening to your new record and I was just like, I think I heard something similar on, on your new record hours and theirs uh, with your song, the hourglass where I was just like, Oh, there's something Beatlesque here. There's something very, very Beatles. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure what that song. That's one. Like usually, I when I make a song, it like takes a while for me to get it from beginning to end. You know, either the lyrics are hold me up, or there's something about it. But for some reason, that song, I, I kind of wrote it all kind of together. I had the idea for it, and then what what happened with it was later in the studio when I brought it into John. Um, we kind of pulled it apart like deconstructed and then and then put it back together and we were talking about doing dry drums and these kind of things like that so we the way we did it was was different from the uh, all, like all the other songs on the record i think but that song i don't really know it's one of those where i don't know what the source thing was i don't know where i got the riff from or anything just like all of a sudden i kind of had a uh, most of that idea you know what i mean which is yeah. rare for me rare for me so i i'm not sure you'll you would be a better better judge of what where it came from than i would i, I don't know 
Well, I mean, that, that was just you're hearing something I, in it. That's probably what it is. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like you took it directly. But it's definitely yeah. It definitely yeah. has this Beatles like vibe to it. Mm, cool. I'll take yeah. that. Yeah. No, it's a it's a great song. Um, Thank you. So let's move on to the next song, "The Fight." <laughs> yeah, this is Peter's song, which is so so. Like I was saying, he's kind of more direct. Right. Uh, songs, more sort of. Um, uh, not normal, but more like straightforward, direct, straightforward. Yeah, um, and it's just kind of like that, and it's about obviously having a fight with your significant other there. And, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's 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 very it, it, it's a little awkward because it's just like this is like very honest, you know? Yeah, it's just like an honest thing. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it is what it what it what you think it is basically, but uh, but again, the the, the overall sound of it, the production stuff they did. Is, <clears throat> is really cool. It sounds cool. Right. It sounds activated and uh, but like it's still really poppy and uh, I don't know, just uh, well put together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, oddly That's- enough, uh, Peter Holzapple has said that uh, this song and "Ask for Jill" were two of their most requested songs. Wow. Yeah, I love "Ask for Jill." Yeah. Um, the fight you know it's not one of my favorite Peter songs I do like it but I think it was one that was really uh, um, easy to to latch on to you know what I mean from for a first time listener mm-hmm. you can really kind of grasp it at once and some of the other ones take a couple listens and you're like I mean you like something about them you know what I mean but um, this song you can really kind of get it yeah. you hear it okay okay and maybe yeah, you relate, you know, even. so people, yeah, so people can relate, and also you can relate by having had the same experience, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I can believe that. I do yeah. love asking. Well, that's a great song too. <laughs> right. Um. So I'm not asking you about like a domestic thing at all, like a like a you know relationship thing. But have you ever been in a fight, like a physical fight? Um. Not really. Yeah. Not you know, like like punching somebody or something like that. Yeah. No, I, I never have been. Oh, that's that's good. I'm not much not much of a fighter. Yeah, I've never been punched, or I've never punched it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I, I have, yeah, I felt like it probably. <laughs> you know? I, I've been jumped. I haven't been in a fight. Oh my! Yeah, I was I was jumped in high school once, but it wasn't. I didn't fight back, so there was no fight involved. Been in an argument fight, you know, like that kind of a fight, but never a of fist course. fight. Kind of like <laughs> Peter Holzapple, like this kind of fight. I mean, that's that's yes. very fairly common, I'm sure. I, I know I happens with me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's a good yeah. It's it's a good song for people, maybe uh, people that aren't familiar with them to hear that you know to really get into, because you can really take the meaning. It's straightforward and uh, the meaning, but still has the cool you know ideas, sound and sonic kind of ideas and uh, hmm. production ideas, and uh, it's fun. It's kind of fun in a way, you know. Even it though is. it's about a not fun topic, it still has an air of fun about it. Yeah, I think it's 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 kind of delivered in a in a in a almost a humorous way yeah 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 for sure um Great all right well, let's, let, yeah let's move on to the next song espionage espionage uh, is a little weirder one from chris yep espionage. yeah um i'm not that sure can, what that song's about either i don't know either actually i couldn't figure it but out but i like it <laughs> yeah that guitar sound is what is what kills me like that it's just, so just cool. it like rattles right? out like that string he just hits just like Dang. yeah it's so weird things like that. all these songs have the little things like that that are just like how did you why did you you know that's so cool so yeah this is another one i would say it's kind of like dynamite in a way where um you're hearing 
sounds of things and words um, to make this kind of a little painting. Yeah. That you know that's that's partially exploded. You know. <laughs> right. So like, uh, to, to give you a little insight, because I know that you're curious about some of the things that they did on this yes. recording. Um, let's see, Stamey compared it to the song 96 Tears. It was played on an ace tone <laughs> organ because they liked how it would shift pitches when you bumped the power button. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Uh, that's an yeah, and then some of the sound effects are a, pl are a plastic ruler. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. He didn't describe how they played it or like what they did, but I can imagine that you know a plastic ruler like there's definitely a lot of like boing, like a lot of vibration. Yeah, right. Could possibly happen with it. Well, that's very interesting. I didn't know any of that stuff. I don't know. Have any idea how they made these records? I, I just love the the songs, but um, yeah. So this is good information for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so are were there any like left of center instrumentation that you chose for for the new record? Um, not really. I mean, I think, uh, the, the next to last song in the record, um, called North Main Blues, there is, uh, a bunch of synthesizer stuff on it, which wasn't really going to be there initially. It was just kind of, that song was actually just going to be kind of a straightforward guitar rock song. And I ended up putting, playing the main part of it on a Wurlitzer keyboard sound it was a sample one mm -hmm. but then uh, i i got i got these um these synthesizer plugins and some of them were ones i knew from back in the day you know from the 80s and stuff but this one this particular one it was a yamaha this giant thing it looked like and i didn't know it but what i did was i had um i wanted to see what it sounded like so i was midiing the stuff right so i put I had the track I had just played, the MIDI information for the for the Wurlitzer track that I did, and I just popped this on. So now this this synthesizer is going to play the MIDI information from the piano part that I just did, right? Hmm. So okay. I did that, and it didn't sound like notes really because it was on some kind of crazy patch where it was, does like random stuff, and so it's like where the part would be like boom, 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 like this. I'm playing chords, you know, on the piano, but I, that same part played through the synthesizer it just goes <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah crazy, like, panning from side to side in the headphones like oh whoa 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 it's like i gotta use this sound i gotta use this sound this sound is going on in this song somehow i don't know how but um i so i got kind of obsessed with that um huh. but nothing too weird you know like on yeah. that one song that you, that you mentioned um um hourglass we did some stuff where we used like the method of putting putting towels and things on the drums to make them really super dry and just go, you know, like the snare drum where it doesn't have any ring at all. We did, oh, we did yeah. that kind of. Um, and there's a couple of crazy. Uh, oh, this song uh, called Insta. We were playing, we were working on that one day, and and Jeffrey from Velvet Crush actually happened to be in the area and came by the studio in Wisconsin, which was which was unexpected. But but John, my John Richardson from who owns the studio and my partner in the band had gotten somebody brought over this thing. This was like some kind of guitar effect thing that was on a stand. It was like an old one. It was from the, I guess, 80s or maybe even before. And I, I don't know what it did exactly, but it made these crazy sounds. It was kind of like a, a pedal, but it had like a, it was on like a cart <laughs> and it would just make the guitar sound really crazy. And so we made Jeffrey play through that or something like that. Like we, we plugged it in and said, play, play this, play with it, you know? So, huh. um, that was one of those things where we just happened to have the thing and <laughs> had never used it. And 
had a guy who hadn't played with us and we thought this sounds perfect let's put let's do this so um we used that thing some i don't even know what it was called or what it was i don't remember now hmm. okay but yeah but everything you know everything else is fairly standard stuff nothing as wildly creative as the dbs <laughs> yeah yeah well so let me I'm, gonna, I'm actually gonna read you something so we're gonna skip down we're gonna skip some songs and, and skip to cycles per second okay and now i'm actually going to um re resort to the book for this because i wasn't okay. going to try to type this out because it's like okay <laughs> it go, it's, it's some of the detail that i'm telling you about there's just like this is this is really in depth okay so um so let's see so they're talking about recording cycles per second and he says here uh rather than have the band repeat the title at the end of the song i made a slightly wonky tape loop of it cutting off a sliver too much of the tape because they're working on real tape obviously right. so that the so the sound went off the rails in a way that matched the subject matter but it still didn't quite convey how thoughts can spiral out of control because he also says that this song is supposed to be about manic depression um, oh. So we put the ta tape at half speed and did overdubs in real time, making them come out twice as fast and up right. an octave on playback. Um, let's see. Wow. Now, we also added layers without listening to the other tracks at all, as Alex <laughs> and I had done in Connecticut for Where the Fun Is. Once we had several tracks on this randomized oral spaghetti, we would run mixes where someone randomly pushed faders up and down, never too certain, what was going to pop out of that pop out of what we called party tracks in, in a given mix pass. That is awesome. Yeah. So it, it's just insane. Like some of the stuff that they, they ended up kind of doing for, for some of these songs. Like that is cool. We did a Mitch did a thing when we were doing teenage symphonies where he, um, I don't know what the, what the instrument was. It might have been just a Mellotron or something we were using, or a, a Chamberlain, but he recorded um, stuff kind of like that on separate tracks of the multi-track tape. And then during the song, would just sort of pull up randomly the faders to do this. So it's like an instrument. So you yeah. could kind of just play it. And you didn't really know necessarily what the notes or care, you know, what the notes were. So you just, this sound had this, this thing has this sound. So it wasn't quite as, it was still one sound. I think, you know, it was like one instrument where they're talking about doing a whole bunch of different things, right. which is pretty amazing. But um, yeah, without yeah. even listening, like they, like they would record yeah. stuff and like not even Total just record. Yeah. Like it, it's insane. That's, that's crazy. Well, I mean, a little bit like, you know, Beatles stuff that they would do where they, where they would have, you know, like for the the Beatles song for the benefit of Mr. Kite, they, there's like a organ, a calliope part in there, and mm -hmm. the story is that they just sort of um, mix the tape, they cut the tape of it up into little pieces, and then, uh, you know, put it back together in in whatever order it came out in, sort of thing, and then they made a mm -hmm. loop of that, and that played in the song. So oh, it's okay. like <laughs> so part of it's like a real song, you know, like the the melody that you hear, but then there's bits where they goes all over the place and. Right. You know, I think inspired kind of like by that kind of stuff, which is fun, fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, especially working with tape, that's a very weird art form that like, you know, obviously almost nobody gets to do anymore. And then even yeah, still, those guys like... were great at it. Like Chris, you know, I'm sure he did a lot of this tape manipulation and Mitch did too. I remember, you know, when we were doing uh, the, the basic tracks for Teeny Symphonies and um, we had some, we were working on two inch tape and, um, we did a couple takes of a song, two or three takes of a song, and our consensus was that it sounded really good, 
this take, but this other take had a better the, the bridge or something. The drums are really good on it compared mm-hmm. to the others, kind of cooler. So, so and I, you know, I didn't really know much about tape editing and stuff. So Mitch was like, "Well, why, why don't we just try cutting that together?" I was like, "Oh, cool, okay, <laughs> cut it together." Like cut the tape. Yeah. Like yeah, I was, cut it. I was like, "You're gonna cut the tape?" Like yeah, like okay, which was really normal for them, you know. But yeah. at that point, I, I was you know not very experienced. So so he, you know, they get out the cutting block and the. They find the place, you know, find where to cut it and they cut it together. Like, oh, cool. And Mitch is like so nonchalant about doing it. You know, he's standing there. He's like, he's doing it and getting and he's like eating a banana, you know, eating a banana. And then he's like, puts a banana down and then does the splice and puts it together and rolls it back. And it's hard to do, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like hard. so you, you got to roll it across the head and see where to cut it. You got to find a, like a, a beat, a, a, a drum beat, a kick or snare beat. And, and then you got to, the hard part is like knowing where you are in the song, you know, to right. do it. So you roll the tape forward back together. Forward. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he just did it, and it was like nothing for him. So the those guys, uh, he and Chris, you know, I think they just were like that was their bread and butter kind of stuff that they learned. You know, when they were when they were learning how to do stuff, that was that was how you do it. Right. And they were really good at it, and so it was. But you can do a lot of cool manipulation that way. It just is hard. You know, it's harder to do than yeah. like digital stuff that you that that we partake in now. Yeah, you had really had to work for those. Uh, do, doing an effect like that, like those kind of things, is takes a lot of time, and uh, and some expertise also. Yeah, because there's a huge margin of error that's possible there, like where yeah. you can. And, and apparently, lose. he's using the margin of error to to his advantage in this particular case. Yeah, yeah. Where he said, you know, said wanted to demonstrate how you know the crazier sounding and the cacophonous or something like that, you know. So, um, but he knew that. So, yeah. Well, well, you know, he's a genius. What can I say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um... We're gonna we're gonna skip a skip a few songs here because uh, there was a few things that kind of didn't really have much to work with. Um, okay. I wanted to skip on to Big Brown Eyes. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah, this that's, is a great song. That's a great uh, Peter Holes Apple pop song. That's just perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, he's got a couple on this side really that are like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Big Brown Eyes, it's their first song working with Scott Litt. Uh, who was helped, yeah, who helped on the mix, according to Stamey. Uh, Chris also called it a perfect Hall's Apple miniature. Yeah. Um, so Scott Lick uh, going on to be one of the premier producers and engineers uh, in the industry, even today. Uh, and then this is where I was actually going to ask you, we've already been speaking about Mitch Easter because you've been, I know you that you've worked with him in the past. I mean, and you've already shared with me quite a bit of stories of uh, what it was like to work with him. So... Yeah, well, you know, there's a Scott Litt connection, too, because uh, once we finished Teenage Symphonies, um, the label or one of the labels involved expressed an interest in trying to have a mix guy mix a couple songs, you know, like for radio or whatever. And so the the idea was Scott Litt. And so he did actually remix um, three of the songs on the record. So those three songs are not Mitch's mixes. They're Scott's mixes, which was uh, like oh. the whole, the first song in the record. And I did not work with him. Uh, Rick went to that mix with him in LA, but I didn't go. But so we have a little Scott lit tie in there. Hmm. So that was your only, can, only uh, working experience with Scott? Uh, yeah, I, I, we never worked with him past that. He was just, you know, he was just hired as a mixer to, to, to do a different mix of these, you know, these songs to kind of, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess they 
with that, those kind of thinking, you know, it's with the record companies thinking that like the, the guy that did the thing, it's good for that name to be on there and the thing. I mean, I, and I, I like, he did a good job on the mixes and everything. Although I don't, uh, I don't know that they're any better than the original mixes, but they're, you know, they're different and they, they hmm. pleased the people at the time. So it was okay. You know, it was okay. It was a little bit of a concession that we made, but I have to say we didn't during the whole making of teenage symphonies, we didn't have any record company um, static or even much involvement. You know, they left us alone. Once we set up the parameters, say we we're going to do this. We're going to go to Mitch's. We're going to do it with Mitch. Da, da, da. Yeah. We didn't hear from them. So that was great. It was very artistic, very much artistic freedom to do whatever we felt like. So that was one little thing. We said, okay, well, that's cool. Scott Litt mixes the songs, you know, yeah. he does good stuff. So, like, okay. sure. And it's always an honor and a privilege to be able to get to work with somebody like that, even if it's in that kind of context. Yeah. So we got, we have his name on there and um, yeah, a little time, but I did not know that he uh, worked on, on the big brown eyes song there. Yeah. I think uh, it, this was kind of um, one of his first projects, you know, like, um, oh. so this is kind of one of the little stepping stones that kind of got him, you know, into his career path. Well, it is a great, I, I think of this, of, of all the songs on this record, but like what, what Chris said about the, the perfect miniature, it's sort of like each, each song is its own little masterpiece, I think, you know, and uh, this one certainly exemplifies that. Hmm. All right, well, let's move on to the next song, I'm in Love. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I say that about every song. Uh, that's one of Chris's, I think. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually fairly... Um, straightforward in uh, in lyrical meaning i think um, yeah it is well, for it's him weird. oddly so for him. for him exactly for him because he's a little weird uh, like i've read something about him aside from in this book where like he was uh, talking he was describing one of his other songs like a more recent song that he was doing like trying to write a like a, a wedding song so okay. instead of saying like I'm in love for like I will love you forever, it's like I'm gonna do my best or something like that. That's like yeah, so kind of like <laughs> I don't know. Like I like you said, it's very very Chris Stamey. Like I don't know how else to say it. And like so uh, even like in this, so what he said in his book is that uh, I'm in love. Quote sounds like it was written while distracted in transit, scattered. The song got lost in an overly fussy period production, for which I have the lion's share of, of the blame. Uh, years later, I was pleased when the band retooled it for concerts by lowering the key and eliminating some overly melodramatic arrangement twists and turns. Oh, wow. Okay. No, yeah. I just thought it was cool. I, I like the production of it, but, um, I mean, you know, it's kind of like the, I'm in love with the girl, the big star thing, you know, the sentiment. And I, that's why I don't mind it, that it's so direct and it's nice to have. I guess maybe it's not as direct as I thought if he's saying that about it, but, um, but that's a cool song. It's a great, yeah, yeah. got a great, to it, a great vibe to it. Yeah. And like the, the, like the yeah. lyrics for, I love, I love what I don't understand and I don't understand this attraction, you know? So it's yeah. not, it's not like a straightforward love song. Like I, like I'm yeah. in love and I love you and all this stuff. Exactly. It's very, it's very strange, but, um, but it's direct for him. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a weird way where he's being honest, being like, I don't know what the fuck this is. But this is what I assume love is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes yeah. really well into the next song, which is a, one of the great ones on the record also. Right, yeah. But uh, uh, before I go there, the uh, quote that I read from you from his book, um, where he kind of mentions uh, re retooling some of the, the yeah. arrangements mm -hmm. for the song. Is there anything, uh, any, is there any song that you can think of from your catalog that you either 
wish you could do differently or have changed? Um, well, you know, I change <laughs> when I'm making these records, like the small square records, I change a lot of stuff um, before they ever get out the door, you know, like I go through, if I'm not, if I'm not happy with it, I'll, I'll pull stuff out and change it. And so case in point, there's a song, um, a song called open up closer. Well, it's called open up on the CD. Um, and, um, originally that song was done. We did a, we did a couple, we did a session with several studio musicians at one time playing all at once. Like, cause John works like this with other clients and stuff. What I call it, the sort of Nashville way of doing things where you, you have like four or five guys all playing at the same time who have never heard the song before, you know, so learn it on the spot. And so we mm -hmm. did that. We did the song called found object that way. And then we mm -hmm. did this called open up that way. And so open up, we did it and it had all these guys on it. And, um, I never, it didn't really work for him. I, I couldn't, it was okay, but I, I don't think it, I didn't think it like got realized. Like it wasn't kind of what I thought it would be or something. Hmm. And so even though that was a big thing and big production, I think we also recorded it onto uh, analog tape, th those two songs as well. Um, but later I'm talking about it with John. I was like, yeah, I'm just, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. It's, it's changed it a little bit for me. Now I don't know what to do. I don't, I'm not sure if that's the right direction. And he said, well, and we started talking about this band Shoes, who are our friends. This, they're a power pop band from the 70s who John actually plays drums for still when they do stuff and when they make a record. And they're good friends of ours. And I said, God, it'd be really cool to like get to get like Shoes to be on it or something, you know, to, to think they would you know sing on it or something. It'd be really cool. Um, hmm. And so John, John gets his phone out instantly on the spot. We were like at, you know, lunchtime eating a burrito or something. He's like, calls up Gary from Shoes and says, you know, tells him what we're doing. He said, would you guys do this, sing on this song or play or do something on it? And he was like, he's like, yeah, well, I'll, let me call the guys and see. And so it all came together. And then we went over there, hmm. you know, we just went over to, which was across the state. They live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. John lives in Menominee. So John lives on the West side of the state. And so we went over there and they came and we had a little pizza party and they made up vocal parts and sang on this song. And Gary then did the lead guitar on it a little later on. And, um, it made the song like once they started singing, I was like, oh, okay, I, I know what this is supposed to be now. This is what it's, you know, this is right. This yeah. is the right thing. So, which was, you know, it wasn't hugely different, but the right elements added made it hugely different. You know what I mean? Like it just, sure. it just had the right thing. So their voice on it, which I love the way they sound, not like anybody else and the way they sound on it. Cause I like their records, you know? And then Gary put some guitar on it that was also very much their style. And, and it made that song be a thing that I liked, you know, whereas before it was like, eh, I don't know if it's really not really cutting it. So I don't have any um, problem with sort of gutting the song and fixing it or, or ditching the song. But I, I hate to ditch the songs, you know, so I usually yeah. try and do some stuff to fix it. Um, Otherwise, so you, you'll, you know, you'll always I, I do the arrangements, one. changings before releasing the record. Like you'll make sure that it's like done before you put it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, generally, yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's other things that have happened where you're limited by what you can do or what you thought of at the time. And, uh, you know, like with Velvet Crush stuff, there's probably stuff I would do maybe a little differently. But but really going back and thinking about it, it, it all makes sense in its own timeline, you know. Mm -hmm. Sure. And. I'm actually going to have, uh, speaking back of that, of open up that song, uh, I asked, um, I'm, I'm going to have a Jeff Murphy from the band shoes to do a remix of it to like something different from my mix of it. Cause I mixed the record. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm interested in doing that kind of thing. Like just give the stuff to somebody and have them do something that's different from what I did that oh, I yeah. didn't, I can't think of. And I, you know, you know what I mean? Like it makes it a whole different thing using right. the bones of what you, you have to work with. So that I'd, I'd like to do that with more stuff, but, um, and I hope to do that on this, with this record, the, the new record, Okay. but otherwise I don't think I would go back and revisit too much of this stuff. You know, I think it's, I think it's good in its own time. And maybe, uh, you know, if somebody would cover a song, that would be cool. Hmm. Then it would okay. be different. You know? Oh, yeah, hmm. clearly. All right. Well, that sounds good. Um, so then, yeah, moving on to the last song, uh, Moving in Your Sleep. Oh, beautiful. It's a great yeah. session. Uh, I mean, a great record ender and uh, another Pulls Apple classic. Mm-hmm. Just the whole, uh, the whole feel of it you can really relate to. And um, it puts you in a place, I think. It really yeah. transport. Yeah. It's great. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, but it's yeah. moving. I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, so so Stamey goes on to say pretty much the same thing. He says that uh, this is the only track from this album that he can return to with unqualified pleasure. Wow, really? That's saying <laughs> yeah. something. I, I know the feeling there. That, that that's that's yeah. saying something. Yeah. And it's not his yeah, song. It's, I mean, uh, it's, it's Apple's song, right? It's so. Beautiful. Yep. Yep. It's so uh, he goes on to say that, quote, it sounds like it was written in whispers and then immediately recorded all while sitting in bed next to a sleeping lover. Mm-hmm. So Great. Uh, spot yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, it really puts you like in a in a sort of a, you know, a sun coming up kind of bedroom or something scene. And I always you know have that kind of feel uh, with it kind of hazy. It's kind of it's just great. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, evocative. kind of romantic, you know, just kind of like. Yep. 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 Certainly. So, um, so in closing, I, I just like to say that uh, I feel something similar to this statement uh, about your new album, Ours and Others, because because uh, while I was listening to it, it, it seems like it's a, a very raw recording where there are very like there are many moments of like, you know, you hear countins, like you hear room noise, like chatter and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, so making it seem very intimate. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that stuff. Um, I. I... I left some of that stuff in. I just kind of like when records have that stuff on there. When you really, some of my fam- favorite moments of records are when like the, like a song's kind of fading out, you know, on a fade out Yeah. and you kind of hear people when they start fucking around or something happened or they don't, or there's somebody talking or I like that kind of stuff. So anytime we had a good thing like that, I, I tried to employ it somehow and stick it in. Oh, I will mention um, if you have a second, there's, sure. speaking of that exact kind of thing, on the last song, the last song is a cover song by our friend Tommy Keen. Oh, okay. Who wrote it, right? And and Tommy, John played in Tommy's band for a very long time. Yeah. And Tommy played with Velvet Crush, and Tommy opened for Matthew Sweet uh, more recently in the later years here before his death. And, you know, he meant a lot to a lot of us. And um, I always wanted him to do this song. When, like when he was out with he was he was opening solo acoustic for Matthew Sweet Band uh, for the last couple tours we did and and so it became a thing where sort of like every day or two I would say are you gonna do Babyface Tommy you got to do Babyface and he it's an older song and he's like I you know I, I'm not gonna do it and I kept saying it and saying it you know in the van I'd say it and he's like I can't I can't really sing it like I can't do it acoustic because it's kind of higher and it's hard for me to do just playing acoustic guitar it's hard to get the you know, the voice going on and which I totally, you know, understand. I relate to that. Mm-hmm. So, but I knew he wouldn't do it, but I kept just saying it became a joke. So anyway, then um, I had kind of plans to record it just because of that. And then 
then he passed away and I was like, okay, I'm recording it right now. And so I did it and I did it and it was a real down, you know, I was bummed out kind of thing. So I did a different version, not guitar rock kind of thing. And I sent it to John. I did it in Japan. I sent it to John in Wisconsin and he was in the studio with, um, these two guys, a bass player and a uh, string player, Adam Beard and Adam Allendorf. And he said, well, we can just, maybe we'll three of us will cut this, you know, to your track and see what we get and then send it back to you. I said, okay, cool. So they did. And it's kind of quiet song, right? So they're out there and they're playing uh, bass and, and uh, acoustic, I think, and the, and the drum set. And so at the end of the song, like they're letting the, you know, they hit the last crash, the cymbals ringing out, everybody's holding, you're holding out and they hear something through the monitor, through the headphones. They're like, what, what is that? And so they let it go and then they stopped the tape, you know, they finally stopped it and, and they went back and checked it out. And it was, um, somebody's phone was sitting out in the, in the live room on a stool or something, somebody's iPhone. And it was playing a song. Like it just sort of spontaneously started playing a song from Spotify or from something. I don't know what it was. But, and so the song was one of Tommy Keene's songs, one of his other songs. Whoa. This song called uh, Compromise, I think is what it was, which I, I, you can hear it. If you know what it is, you, you can maybe barely hear it. It's on the very end of the song. I left it in there. Yeah. I tried to pump it up a little so you could hear it. But it was just, but they were like freaked out because he had, it wasn't very long uh, after he had passed away. And they all knew him. Adam played in his band the last tour that he did, this other guy that was on the session. Yeah. And so they're sitting there and it's like, it's Tommy's song. And they're like, oh my God. Like, you know, it was like a freaking ghost, ghost yeah. moment. And it was really, really weird. So John immediately gets a hold of me and says that happened. I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. Wow. So that's yeah, I like that kind of stuff on the record. I think it really does make uh, make it. I wanted the record to seem a bit more intimate. Um, I always have a fear of kind of having something that comes off too polished or, you know, something like that, that I don't like. Hmm. Maybe it would never, maybe it would never because I'm not that kind of a player and stuff, but, but, yeah. um, um, I like those little things in there. I like when you hear somebody's voice in the song, you know, you hear like Brian Wilson going, oh, you know, like counting off a part in the middle of something yeah. on Pet Sounds or, you know, those kind of things are really cool to me. So yes, yeah, yeah. thanks for noticing. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, uh, avoidable really. I mean, I think that it's like, if you're listening to it at all, like if you're really like, I mean, I typically like will listen on headphones and stuff, you know, I try to kind of like yeah, sure. fairly isolate when I'm trying to give something a listen. Um, and so I kind of picked up on it right away, you know, um, cause I love that too, really. I mean, for the most part, I love like count-ins and stuff like that. It kind of like sounds like you're in the room with the people, you know? Um, but yeah, that's a yeah, particularly that's, yeah. like interesting story. And like, that's not something that no one would know about unless you mentioned it now. Cause I mean, yeah, I almost forgot to say it, but when you brought up that, I was trying to think of like the examples of that, where I left things in, I was like, Oh, that one, that was, that was like a big one. And that's the other thing so, is like, the, like, you know, the beginning of the beginning of the record starts with some sounds that was, um, that guy, Adam again, playing, um, and it was through a Leslie uh, speaker, you know, the rotating speaker, an organ speaker is playing uh, guitar through that. Right. And uh, I, it was at the tail of the song. And I put it, I think at the beginning, cause I liked that way that was sounding and some of it got reversed or something. It was something weird going on, but those were all just like moments that they weren't created for that purpose. I just, you know, I found the moment and put it that that was at the end of the song. I put it at the beginning of the song, but then again, sometimes I think it's kind of annoying that the song just doesn't start right away. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, like it, it has its it has its charm, you know. Uh, and and like I think, like you said, like sometimes these little these little noises, these little just like kind of like effects that you kind of find, like they they have such a such a like a like an interesting part. Like it kind of like a it kind of pulls you in a little bit because yeah. you kind of like don't know what to expect. Like especially if it's not like you know, uh, like a simple like kind of typical instrument, guitar, drums, whatever it is that just kind of like right. brings it all in, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you think so. I, I didn't know if anybody else thought that or not. And I, you know, I a lot of times I end up having stuff like that at the beginning or end of every song. So then I go back once I've kind of worked on them. I'm like, well, I don't need something on every song. You know, like okay, enough's enough. You got to get the cool ones. And because I just right. I, my tendency is to put a thing, hat leave a thing in or have it in there or whatever. You know, um, right. but enough. You know, it, it, you you need to you need to temper it a little bit, I guess. Sure. So anyway, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that it translates because I do I do feel like that, too. And I think sometimes you even remember that stuff about a record you hear it. You go like, oh, yeah, it's got that sound, that thing. Or they say this there. They say a word. Yeah. Or what are they saying there? You're like a little, you know, like surprise thing. You don't know. But you end up remembering it somehow. Right. Right. And the, that that Tommy Keene story specifically is so so touching, too, because, I mean, obviously you guys were so close and the the the, the you know, just the, the fact that that happened i mean it really sounds I like wonder, i don't even know to how to guys. explain yeah i don't know how to explain how it happened i mean uh, could have been triggered by the fact that we were playing but the way we were playing the song was so not like the original version of that song like if you right. did a if you did a, a shazam of it i don't know if it would yeah you know know that know that it was yeah. that song i don't know how that works but like the chords right. are the same stuff but Tommy's version of it is like a rock song, you know, and mine yeah. is not. So I don't know. How well, that... <laughs> it sounds funny that it, it's it sounds funny to me because look, I I don't I don't know those songs, right? But you just told me that the song that was playing was his song called uh, "Compromise." I think it was one called "Compromise." So yeah. it was like him speaking to you, saying, "You're covering my song. I'm making this compromise with you to, <laughs> to allow you to do this." <laughs> <laughs> that could be. It could Fine, be, man. It's fucking that. weird. It's so weird. And then I found out later that um, Tommy's brother, um, who is a close friend of ours too, um, it's kind of this guy in charge of his music and stuff. And I, I, so I asked him if it was okay, you know, that we, I said, I got this version of Tommy's song. I want to send it to you. And I want to know if it's okay. I want to put it on our record. And he said, yeah, I love it. And um, actually that's the first song that my late wife and I, you know, danced to at our wedding was that song of Tommy's. So it oh, had like wow. emotion. I didn't know about any of that, you know. So I didn't know it was had kind of meaning for other other members of the family. But um, so I thought he said, "Yeah, I'd love, I'd, I'd, it would be great to have it on the record." So I said, "Okay, awesome." Wow, that's great, man. Wow, that's uh, it's so powerful, you know, so doing this stuff, making music, and kind of reaching people, people close to you, people that you don't know, whatever it is that. And that, I think that, I think you it's easy to lose sight of it too because you get so involved in the making of it and things, you know, like you you hope that it has some kind of a, a transcendent quality or some impact on on somebody, but you don't, you know. I'm talking to you, and you tell me what you think about. It, so that's that's one way to know. But mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, you kind of are so immersed in the process of trying to do it or get it out or promote it or do something with it that um, you maybe don't. Uh, the artist maybe doesn't always. Uh, you're have oblivious that, to it. Have like, that I mean, vision of it. Yeah. You don't, I mean, you don't at get a the show, feedback. Definitely. Yeah. You know, a show, you play a song, people say, oh, I love that song. But sure. like, as far as the recording itself, you, you don't necessarily get, it's one-sided. You know, it's one way. It's a one-way trip kind of. So. Right. so it's actually fun to, to talk to people about that stuff. Yeah, man. Like yourself. Well, 
Yeah. Well, I thank you. Thank you for taking the time and talking to me about it. I really appreciate it, man. Hey, I appreciate, been... I'm sorry. I hope we didn't go over time. I was, uh, no. I started launched right into my Ivan thing because I was so happy to hear <laughs> Ivan on oh, the that's other all right, man. No worries, man. No, I, it's just an honor to speak with you, man. I, I really, really do enjoy this. Well, thank you. And uh, um, you're kind of making me miss some some Providence things. I haven't been yeah. there for quite a while. Well, I mean, what's the what's the plan with the small square? I mean, do you are you planning on doing any touring at all? Um, there's nothing afoot uh, right now. Um, uh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I'd like to get something going, but um, I don't. I don't have anything on the on the books at the moment. I just got done doing the Velvet Crush stuff, and um, uh, I don't know where I'm at with it actually. So okay. that's a that's a definite don't know. <laughs> all right. But yeah, well, sure, we would like to do some stuff. We would definitely like to do some shows and get yeah. that happening. Of course. So I mean, but the album is out now, and uh, the CDs yep. have sold out. It looks like so. There's some still available, maybe at um, at the label farmtolabelrecords.com. Okay. Uh, there's some there. Uh, the Bandcamp is temporarily out of CDs. Probably will have some more at some point soon, but I don't have them right now. I was just sending those to international destinations mostly. So if you want a CD in the states, go to Farm to Label Records, and they uh, should be able to hook you up. Otherwise, it's streaming everywhere and downloadable and all that kind of stuff. Great. Okay. Great. Thanks man. very much. Bye bye. No problem, man. Have a good one. Vinyl Invasion is a second static production. Theme song written and performed by Jeff Robinson, 123 Lustra. You don't like thinking you're wrong. You don't like thinking.